0: The subject given to me surrounds the idea of does God have a personal plan for me? Um, Do I know what it is? And how can I trust God's timing? So let's begin to think about how God may interact in our lives. Let's look at the spectrum of, from one end to the other, the ideas of how God might interact with us. The first one is that we might have with Steve this. Free will without expectation. <coughs> That'd be one side. Is that scriptural? Do we have free will? Yes. We do have free will. Joshua talks about that. Uh, choose this day who you will serve. We see it all through the, through the Bible. But that's one end. But do we not have expectation? The Bible's chock full of expectation for us. And on the other side, we might have... Predestination. Is that a scriptural concept? <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in its... Uh, purest form I think the way it's used today it's not Um, in in the sense that uh, you know iron's drawn to a magnet by a power that it can't see or control and it has no choice in in that sense that we are destined to salvation and absolutely nothing we can do about it we're drugged there against our will so to speak and that idea of predestination is not scriptural think about how many how many uh, Verses in the in the New Testament would not be true, would not even make sense if predestination were true. Hebrews ten and twenty nine. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. We're talking about somebody who's been sanctified. They've 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 come to know Jesus Christ. They've become a Christian. They've been sanctified to Him. And then they've turned away. Well, that, does, that doesn't that does jive with predestination. So this isn't true. And this isn't true. So, can somebody tell me what this is? It's a wrench. What kind of a wrench? Adjustable wrench. That's right. A crescent wrench is by brand. What is this used for? I was going to ask Tim, but he probably doesn't use anything like this. He probably used the real thing. But it's used to either tighten or loosen bolts. That's its job. In 1842, Richard Clyburn in England created the adjustable spanner, because they're in England they talk funny. He created, and they patented this idea. You can adjust this wrench so that you can tighten or loosen bolts. He had an idea of what needed to be accomplished. He had a purpose for his invention, and he created it. And when he created it, it had a destiny. The purpose of this wrench Is to tighten or loosen bolts. Now I carry this one on my tractor. I would say it's probably less than half the time it's used to tighten or loosen bolts. More often than not, I don't have a hammer with me and it's used as a hammer. Now is it a good hammer? Not near as good as a hammer, but if you ain't got a hammer, it's a hammer. But its destiny is to tighten or loosen bolts. Do you have a destiny? (laughs) Ephesians 2 and 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were created. A Creator created you with a specific purpose in mind, with a destiny to fulfill. 2 Peter 3 and 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You were created for good works. You were created for repentance, to change your life, to accommodate your destiny. 1 Thessalonians five sixteen 16-18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks for this is the will of God your creator in Christ Jesus for you 1 Thessalonians 4 starting in verse 3 this is the will of God your sanctif- sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality listen to these are just a few things but listen to your destiny for good works for repentance for praying, for rejoicing, for giving thanks, for being, remaining pure. You have a destiny given to you by your Creator. So your destiny, we know, doesn't fall here and doesn't fall here. It must be somewhere in the middle. It's where your destiny is. So what about a personal plan? If we have a personal plan, it must fall in here, right? It can't fall here, can't fall here if there's a personal plan. Jesus had a personal plan. Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prisons to those who were bound. And in John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. There was clearly a personal plan for Jesus Christ. Now, He's a little bit different than us, so we probably won't talk much more about Him in this respect, but he had a plan. And I want to look at two others. Paul and Jeremiah. And let's talk about them. Did they have a personal plan? Yes, they did. Jeremiah 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And we skip down a few verses and it says, Behold, the Lord says to me, "Behold, I put my words in your mouth. See this day. Uh, see, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant." So before Jeremiah was even born, God had chosen him, had ordained him to be a prophet. That's a personal plan, and he knew about it because God told him. That's what he says right here. God told me, "This is my plan." This is what I'm going to do. And what about Paul? In 1 Corinthians 1 and 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Now, that's a very common starting of letters by Paul. He's reinforcing his apostleship, but he's he says this for, uh, quite a bit. By the will of God, he became an apostle. That's a personal plan. That you become an apostle, Paul. That's where you're going to end up. That's what you're going to do. And we know in Acts, the ninth chapter, uh, he's struck blind on the road to Damascus. And then Jesus talks to him and says, why are you persecuting me? And he had, that's what you call a real come to Jesus moment, right? Boy, and you know, from that time, from then on, he was thinking before Ananias came to him, he was thinking his personal plan was being fed to him, this will of God that he be an apostle was coming to him. In Acts the ninth chapter, in the thirteenth verse, we find Ananias being sent to Paul, and Jesus talks to him and says, uh, "Well," and, and, and Ananias is saying back to Jesus, "Lord, I've heard many uh, from many about this man. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name." Jesus, are you sure what you're doing? You really don't want this guy but Paul had a personal plan. And Jesus is the one that gave it to him. And then Jesus says back to Ananias, Go and do this for me, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul had a personal plan, and Jesus says, I'm going to show it to you. You're a chosen vessel to go do these things and I'm going to show you just how much it's going to hurt. If you ever want to read a good action novel, read Acts 20 through 27. Boy, it's lively and it's fast and it's intense. And it's all about what happens to Paul here before he ends up in Rome. We find early there in the 20th chapter, the Spirit sends Paul to Jerusalem. And Paul doesn't really know what's going to happen there, except he knows that there's going to be chains and tribulations. Doesn't that sound exactly like what Jesus said? He's going to suffer a lot for me. And Paul knows that's coming, but he says, I'm willing to die for the sake of the name of Jesus. Paul knows what his plan is, and every choice that we see him making through these chapters is the same. To further that personal plan that Jesus has shared with him. He meets Agabus, and Agabus prophesies that Paul will be taken captive and given to the Gentiles. We find Paul, and everybody tries to talk him out of going, right? But he ends up in Jerusalem, and then in Jerusalem, he's immediately set on by a mob, and the Roman soldiers have to come in and save him from being killed. He's being beaten and would have been killed except for the Roman soldiers. And as he's being taken away by the soldiers, he says, let me talk to him. And he talks to him, and he gets to a certain point and they become angry again. And here's the beatings and the attempt to kill him again. And the soldiers come in again and they save him one more time. And then he's going to be interrogated and beaten to get the truth out of him until they find out he's a Roman citizen. And then the centurion brings together the Jewish council. And then the council goes nuts and they're beating him and trying to kill him. The soldiers race in and save him because they're afraid he would be pulled to pieces. That's a... Whew can't imagine going through that in that time period and then in Acts 23 the following night the Lord stood by him and said be of good cheer Paul I think if I had been beaten and tried to be killed three times in the prior few hours I I I think it'd be hard and maybe that's why Jesus was there to remind him be of good cheer you have a personal plan you're not going to die Because I have a plan for you. And you've borne my name here in Jerusalem, and so now you must also bear witness at Rome. Paul had a plan given to him by Jesus. He's taken to Caesarea before Felix the governor. He hears word of an ambush from his nephew, and then he goes and tells the centurion, and so they take an army to get him to Caesarea. And then Felix the governor kind of drags things out for a couple of years, hoping he'd get bought off so he could release Paul. And then Felix gets succeeded by Porcius Festus. Festus then has to deal with this thing. And so he says, well, maybe I should send you back to Jerusalem. And that's when Paul appeals to Caesar. Because where is Paul supposed to go? To Rome. So he chooses. He knows what his personal plan is. And then he makes choices to facilitate his personal plan. God's helping him along the way in some cases. But you see Paul exercising judgment and making choices to further that plan because he knows what it is. So Paul is uh, put on a ship headed for Rome. He warns about danger that would be coming. They encounter he's ignored. They enter a a severe storm. And at some point they run the ship aground. Um, But Paul is told before they go aground there, an angel meets him. During the night, and says, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. His personal plan is going to be fulfilled. The centurion saves Paul's life because they're getting ready to kill the prisoners to keep them from escaping. You remember he goes off to the fire, and there's a snake comes out of the woodwork, a poisonous snake. The The one that the locals were afraid that when it bit Paul, they were afraid he was going to swell up and die because it was a poisonous snake. And nothing happens. God's watching over him still because he has a plan that he's got to fulfill. And then we find Paul reaching Rome. In Acts 28 and 23, they appointed him a day, and many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained solemnly and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Near the end of the 28th chapter, one of the last things we know about Paul. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things that concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Isn't that what Jesus told him his plan was? And all through this, you see Paul working to fulfill what he knew was his plan. So what do we learn from these ideas of a personal plan? One is that if you have a personal plan and you disobey it, you're disobeying God. Does Jonah fit into that? Jonah knew what his plan was. Jonah decided not to follow the plan and Jonah was a disobeying God. <clears throat> How can you follow your personal plan if you don't know what it is? We know Paul knew, we know Jeremiah knew, we know Jonah knew. Do we expect Jesus to tell us, to speak to us in the same way that he spoke to Paul? Do we expect to be told like Jeremiah, here's your personal plan? Does God talk to us like that today? Hebrews, the first chapter, starting in verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So, if we think about how we might be informed of our personal plan, if we have one, we know it's not the prophets, they're gone. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us if there's prophecy, it will fail. I Think we're all comfortable with the idea that the gifts of the Spirit are gone as well. So we've got prophets that are gone, Jesus is gone, the apostles are gone, inspiration is complete, the gifts are gone. So how are you going to be informed of your personal plan? How do you know what you're trying to achieve? If Jonah had got on, on a ship one day to just to go somewhere and he ended up in the belly of a whale, he said, What did I do? But Jonah knew. And if we have a personal plan, it would seem like we would have to know. And if we can't know what our personal plan is, then we have to question if we have a personal plan. And some of you right now may be thinking, but Keith, what about? So let's talk about some what abouts. It was interesting when I got a call from Charles that, uh, and with this subject, just the week prior I'd been talking to uh, another gentleman uh, at at, uh, Lone Jack about Acts the 17th chapter. And uh, it was very interesting because we had a discussion about a very, very similar topic and then then I got the topic to speak on so I had had to do a little more work. But Acts, the 17th chapter, starting in verse 26. Here, remember, we have Paul, and he's among all these idols, and he sees the one to the unknown God, and then he begins to preach about him, and then he says in verse 26, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they may seek the Lord, and in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. Now there in verse 27, it's clearly talking about an individual finding salvation, finding God, that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. So where the things talked about in the 26th verse are those talked about from an individual's perspective. Their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Well, let's go back to the very beginning of the 26th verse. Paul is talking about a nation about nations having their pre-appointed times. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has defined their pre-appointed times and the, the boundaries of their dwellings. So he's talking about a nation in t- verse 26 and an individual in verse 27. Nations don't don't find salvation. Individuals find God. And then if you have a predominantly, mostly a Christian population you might say it's a christian nation but the nation itself isn't what finds salvation but clearly verse 26 he's talking about nation so we i've i've heard this discussed as uh, as proof text for a personal plan i i can't see it that way uh, i see that as a nation that's being talked about in verse 26 individual in verse 27 and, and so it's it takes away some of that idea of I have a personal plan, and the boundaries of my dwelling have been defined by God. What about Jeremiah 29 and 11? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So, who's he talking to here? In Jeremiah 29 and 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent to, from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders. Who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and all the people, whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away from, uh, captive from Jerusalem to Babylon? He's talking about a nation again. In verse four, unto all who were carried away captive, he's talking about a nation. God had a plan for this nation. He he planned for them to be punished and carried away. He planned to bring them back as a nation. Verse twenty or chapter twenty nine, verse ten. After seventy years are completed in Babylon, you get this idea that he's talking about what's going to happen with the nation. But the people who were taken away may not even have been alive to be brought back. And so he's it, so this verse, while it's very comforting to to see what God is doing with His people, I don't think it's talking about an individual. So for us to to look at that, to me, I can't reconcile that as being an individual thing. God has plans for me in this case. Clearly, we see examples of where people had personal plans. We've talked about those. I'm completely comfortable with that. But to extend this beyond to talk about us, I'm much, much less comfortable with. How about James 4 and 13? Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I don't believe this statement is so much about a personal plan as it is about you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. His point is, you can make plans, but you may not even be alive tomorrow. It's about the shortness of life and not necessarily the a personal plan that you have that only God knows and He may steer you in one direction or the other. I don't believe that's what's being talked about there. Might God bring circumstances to bear in your life that might change the choices you make or might prevent you from doing the things that you plan? Absolutely. God can and will do that. We pray with an expectation that something will happen in our favor. We're asking for God to intervene in our lives when we pray. And rightly so. That's... He, he wants to take care of us. But if we're thinking that, then God can interact in our lives and He can change things. But that doesn't mean our personal plan has been uh, disrupted or even that we have one. Ecclesiastes 9 and 11 says, I returned and saw under the sun. The race was not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. The time and chance happens to them all. So might time and chance happen to you tomorrow, so that you can't do the plans that you made? Absolutely. Can God intervene and change things for you? Absolutely. All those things. Could you die tomorrow? Absolutely. All those things fit you know, with these verses here, but they don't necessarily lend themselves to the idea of a personal plan. You know, back in the 1600s, it was a, it was the uh, idea of a, the divine right of kings. King James I and King Louis XIV in the 1600s were big proponents of this, which essentially said that if you were made king, God put you there. And that kept anybody from attempting to depose you because God put me here. That was their personal plan. And who can argue with the king? God put me here. And anybody else that may say they have a personal plan, they say, my personal plan says this were you to argue with him to say no he didn't right because nobody knows what that plan is there isn't a communication channel that gives that to you but you kind of see that that this idea of the divine right of kings kind of playing into this idea of a personal plan and that was a you know pretty heavy for a while there in the 1600s and then a revolution in england and france and america all kind of changed that and that idea has kind of gone out the window But this is a very popular concept uh, across the religious world. But I find difficulty connecting it uh, with the realities of of where we are today. And you know, sometimes the idea of a personal plan that nobody knows but you, um, sometimes just kind of covers bad judgment. Um, Not always, but it certainly can. You know, my brother tells a story. He, he works as he's a mechanic at a dealership. He tells a story about a uh, a man who came into interview for a job. They liked him. They made him an offer, and he said uh, he would think about it. He was going to pray about it and let God make the decision for him. And so the next day he accepted the job, and a week later he quit. And his reasoning was, it was too far to drive. And so the joke around the shop was apparently God didn't know how far it was from that man's house to the shop. <coughs> See where we kind of get ourselves in a bind when we have a personal plan that we probably aren't are able to articulate, and we're not able to go to the scriptures and say there it is, kind of thing. It, it can we kind of we talk ourselves into things, uh, thinking that you know certain things did or did not happen, and so therefore you know we. Our our plan uh, is not what we thought it was, or it uh, um, it's just too hard to pin down. It's too vague for us to be basing decisions in our life on when we can't even articulate it in our own own mind. We do need to learn to trust in God. We should content ourselves to existing within our destiny. We know that's not right, and that's not right, but in the middle the destiny that our creator has for us is his invention is his creation exists and we can we can frame that in we can say this is this is our destiny and we can live contentedly within that destiny and it would be good if we kind of thought about it in that way because we, we i think what we do sometimes is we build up things that we want and maybe when we want them and we decide we, we think that's what ought to be our personal plan, and so we kind of lean that direction. And then if it doesn't happen, then we're, we're unhappy. We may want to be married. We, we may want a particular spouse. We may want children or a car or a house. Or, but does God really care about those things? You may be blessed with things that uh, are, are good for you. There may be a lot of those things may happen to you. And you may have them. But ultimately, are those crucial things to God? Can you be married or not married and still be a Christian? Be acceptable to God? Absolutely. Can you have children or not and still be acceptable? Absolutely. Can you have a car or not or a house or not? or You go down the list of all the things that you think might be in your personal plan. And does God really care about those things? Or can the things that you want be pushed off and you still be a Christian? Still be acceptable to your Savior? and the answer is absolutely yes so we have to be cautious and not build up something that is easily torn down but we attach so much to it sometimes we build those things up well I really want to do this or I think this ought to be part of my plan and then when it doesn't happen we go well I just need to wait for God's timing I need to wait for him to bring this along and I uh, I I don't know. That doesn't seem very active to me. We're, We're probably all familiar with Isaiah 40 and 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So this verse says that we should wait on the Lord. We should find the nearest lazy boy, kick the leg thing out, and wait for God to solve all our problems. But that word wait doesn't really mean what I think wait means. As I begin to to dig into this a little more, um, the definition of this word wait means to bind together, perhaps by twisting. So let's read this verse again with that definition in mind. But those who bind themselves together with the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those who bind themselves together. Even that implication of twisting. you That's how you get anything to stick together, right? Twist that stuff together and you can't get it apart when you're done. Think about your relationship to God. trusting in Him and being a part of His destiny. If you bind yourself to Him, then all those other things that we kind of build up as our wants, what we want and when we want it, those kind of begin to fall away. How many of you have done a three-legged race? And you get your legs tied together. How many fell down when they did a three-legged race? Most. But you know, when you tie your legs together, your left leg is tied to somebody else's right leg, and you have to run down. They probably got it planned tonight. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. But, <laughs> but you know, you know it's so easy to fall, because unless you work extremely well together, you will fall, because you may start with your right leg, and they do too. and But your left leg is to their right leg. And so and so in the ones that are successful you see them looking very closely at one another and they're talking about it saying okay we're gonna i'm gonna go with my left you're gonna go with your right and we're gonna do this on count of count three one two three okay now we're i gotta slow down a little because you're going a little slow okay now let's go faster because we got to win you look at the intensity of that relationship and that communication because you're bound together and think about your relationship to god Are you bound together with him? Are you watching him intently and saying, I'm with you, Lord? Just, you know, let's start this way. You're going that way. I'm going that way, too. Let's do this. And when you bind yourself to him, then you're going to have strength. You're not going to become tired. You're going to gain all those things that Isaiah says because you have made yourself that tight and that close to him. So, a personal plan. Times pass, absolutely. Today, maybe not so much. I can't reconcile the things that we see in the Scriptures related to that with how it could work today. But maybe we look at it a different way. Maybe we say that we all do have a personal plan, but it's the same personal plan for each and every one of us, and it's within this destiny We say we can frame out what our destiny is that was decided by our Creator, and that is our personal plan. It's not going to be as specific as we are used to hearing this talked about, as we may have thought about. But we absolutely have something that we can do to frame ourselves in, understand the will of God, and pursue that. We should trust in Him. We should release our expectations, bind ourselves to Him, you know you when you give up some of those things that you've kind of built up as things that ought to be occurring you really won't miss them when they're gone because you you allow yourself to follow to follow the savior you know Jesus in uh, Luke the 12th chapter tells this story about a, a good servant <clears throat> and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master and when he will return from the wedding that when he comes and knocks they may open to him immediately The servant's waiting, anticipating the master coming back. Boy, I can't wait till he gets here. Um, Blessed are those servants to whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them set down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so blessed are those servants. That's the idea of that servant being bound to the master. I just can't wait for an opportunity to serve His will is mine and if we take that attitude then some of these other things that we may build up fall away and we probably don't care anymore about those things if, if we find marriage great I know of people that have been in their 40s and thought they would never find marriage and they did they found it in their 40s and we all expect that to happen much younger we expect all these other things and we build them up but don't give up on it but just make god your primary concern and let the other things come as they will and you'll be satisfied with where you are jesus speaks of a yoke come to me all you who are laboring and are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you take my yoke upon you that's very much like what we talked about in isaiah 40 and 31 right the binding together. Take my yoke upon you. And Jesus puts that out as a good thing that you're going to be locked into something with Him. You're going to have a a different kind of three-legged race, but it's, it's the same thing. You're tied together with Him. And Jesus says, come and that will be good. So tonight we'll give you that opportunity. If Jesus is not your Savior, there is an opportunity to make that true. You know, we we sometimes get into habits and traditions where we think invitations are offered at the end of sermons and that's when you get saved. That doesn't matter. This, this is just happens to be now. I assure you that if you decide that it's time for your salvation and you call anybody here in the middle of the night, they will gladly get out of bed and meet you at the water. But it's now. It happens to be after a sermon. But it's now. What better time if you're ready for that change in your life, you're ready to accept your destiny and follow it, become a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the opportunity is yours as we stand and sing.